the Apostle Paul ends his letter to the Romans by declaring that the mystery of the gospel was kept secret for long ages, but it was made known through the prophetic writings. Uh, We hear there that the law and the prophets bear witness to the gospel. And so over the summer this year and into the beginning of the fall, we hope to follow that principle into the Old Testament with the hopes of looking at different kinds of texts to see how the seeds of the gospel were planted there in the Old Testament for us, Lord willing, and with the help of the New Testament, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll dive in to understand these different portions of Scripture, always with an eye towards seeing Christ in them, uh, what part they play in God's grand scheme of redeeming all things and reconciling all things to himself, that plan that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there are sermon cards in the back of the pew in front of you where you can grab that and just have a look at it and see what the plan is, Lord willing, to see how the schedule would work out. We're going to look first at wisdom literature in the Psalms, Psalm 119 in particular, meditating on Psalm 119 for a few weeks, and then we're going to switch to a minor prophet in the Old Testament for a few weeks, and then we'll look at a historical narrative in the book of Ruth as we begin our fall semester heading into the end of the year. After that, Lord willing, we'll turn to the Gospel of John as we head into Christmas. So, for the next seven weeks, we'll be looking at Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, no matter how you measure it. And if you've read through it before, you'll notice that there is a very consistent theme throughout this whole psalm, Psalm 119. It's all about God's revelation in words. So that's why we've called it thy word. The way that God has revealed truth and beauty and goodness through his words. This is the primary focus of Psalm 119. And the psalmist uses about eight different words to describe the word poetically in various ways. We translate them into English as law and testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, promises, and word. And each of these synonyms for God's revelation uh, do have a lot of overlap in meaning, but there are some varieties and shades of differences uh, in there as well. But they really, all these words really do boil down to the similar concept of how God has graciously revealed his will to us through his word. The reason that this psalm is so long, Psalm 119, is the psalmist, and we don't know who this psalmist is, not exactly sure when this psalmist wrote this, but the psalmist is setting out to do something that is really interesting. He's trying to be creative. He's setting out to do something poetic here in Psalm 119. In Hebrew, this psalm is an acrostic, an acrostic. So the first letter of each line or verse follows a pattern. Uh, Here's an example. Maybe you've heard of this acrostic before. B-I-B-L-E. And we could take that, the first letter of those words, and then sort of add something creatively and poetic to it. That maybe Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. 
And so that's an acrostic. We've taken the first letter, filled it out. I don't know who came up with that, but there's a similar thing that the psalmist is pursuing in this psalm. All of the first eight verses of Psalm 119 begin with the letter Aleph in Hebrew, similar to our letter A. And then the next eight verses start with Bet, then Gimmit, Dalet Hay, Gimel, Dalet Hay, so on. And it's just following the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in this creative, poetic sort of form. And so if we were to, go to, to try to follow this pattern into English, to see what this might look like for us, it might look something like this. All happiness for those on the path of integrity who walk in the teaching of the Lord. All happiness for those keeping his testimonies and following with all their heart. Also, they do not do injustice, but walk in his ways. And you commanded your precepts to be kept utterly. Ah, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And then I would not be ashamed to look intently at all your commandments. And I will revere you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. And I will keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly." As so you'll notice, the language has to get a little bit stilted and creative in order to fit that form, in order to figure out how to make each verse start with the same letter. And so that's what the psalmist is doing. It's hard for us to see that in our ESV translation, but all of these first eight verses start with the same letter. You might be wondering why would he do this? Why would the psalmist try to fit his meditations into such a strange form or a strange structure? Some think that he made this into an acrostic in order to make it more memorable so that you could memorize it, knowing that every eight verses would, would allow you to, to know which letter is going to start, and so you can sort of predict it a little bit, and that is certainly possible. But it's more likely that the psalmist is using every letter from the Hebrew alphabet in order to ensure that he is approaching his subject from every angle. So he's covering the topic from A to Z, as it were. He wants to be as comprehensive as he possibly can in this poetic exercise of valuing and meditating on God's revelation in words. And so when you read through Psalm 119 and you think, man, this seems a little repetitive, you're not wrong. That's actually the point. It's meditative. It is repetitive on purpose. That's the way that he structured it. It is an exercise of chewing on the word, meditating on it, coming at it again and again from slightly different angles. It really leads you to, to mull it over in more depth in your mind. And if you slow down, which we intend to do over the next few weeks, you'll notice that there's enough interesting variations on the theme of the value of God's Word to have fresh insight in each of the stanzas. So, that's how the entire psalm is structured. But what we must know is that behind that structure is a heart of a person who genuinely wants to desire and rightly value God's word. There's a lot of emotional language in this psalm, a lot of desiring language. The psalmist desires to love what is good and true and beautiful and to hate everything that is immoral and unjust. 
There's a lot of motivational language too. So not just about desire, but also about actions. He wants to have integrity. He wants his actions to line up with what he knows his heart should desire. Our big idea from these first eight verses of Psalm 119 is this. Adhering to the Lord's teaching with integrity and diligence is the path to true happiness. Adhering to the Lord's teaching with integrity and diligence is the path to true happiness. And we've broken this down into two points, verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 8, two sets of four. And first, we should aim to walk in the way of the word to seek true happiness. And then second, that we should aspire to desire the Lord's teaching, verses 5 through 8. Before we dig in, let's pray. Father, we do recognize that you do indeed have the words of life. And we recognize that we, we need to focus this morning. Father, I pray for us here this morning, anyone here who has been wrung out this week. that is wondering if the call to pick up the cross and follow Jesus in an act of submissive discipleship is worth it. Father, would you help us in our doubt? Would you help us in our unbelief to value your word as we ought? Would you guard us from any evil temptation to think that we know better than you? Would you help us to focus our hearts and minds this morning and to submit our hearts and our wills to you and to you alone? Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we should aim to walk in the way of the word for true happiness. Verses 1 through 4, I'll read those again for us as the ESV presents it. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The first two verses of this psalm start with a declaration of blessing. And we have to notice that right off the bat. It is the same way that Psalm 1 starts. If you remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's a declaration of a state of blessing. It's also the way that Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with those Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. It's the same word, similar words, in both in Hebrew and in Greek, and we can rightly translate this into English as 
happy. Happy are those. Blessed can be translated faithfully into English as happy. In fact, that's actually how the Christian Standard Bible translation, the CSB, translation of Psalm 119 begins. It says it like this, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Now, when we say happy, we do not mean a thin, trivial, emotional state of frivolity. It is not uh, the sort of happiness that we might think of in a simple pop song or something like that. When we say happiness, we mean a thick, deep state of human flourishing. It's someone looking on from the outside and just observing and saying, this person's in a good place. They are, they are blessed because of their pursuit or where they're at, what they're valuing. It's a declaration of a recognition of a state of blessedness. Now, these first two verses are important for us to recognize because they're going to set the agenda for the entirety of what comes after it, the next 174 verses. And here's what they're doing. It is a declaration that the way of blessing is the way of the Lord. The psalmist is casting a vision for what true human flourishing looks like. This is definitional of wisdom literature. It's saying there's two ways to live for those who would listen. There is a wise way and there is a foolish way. This is, says the psalmist, what the good life is. It is walking in the way of the word. This is how you get flourishing. This is blessedness. This is how you find true happiness. Keeping a close walk with God following his path is the happy life. Now, that does not mean the easy life. The happy life is not guaranteed to be the sort of happy life that you might have pictured in your own mind. It does not necessarily mean an endlessly prosperous life. It does not mean a sinless life. It doesn't mean a life that is insulated from suffering. But diligently pursuing God's instruction is the happy life according to the only definition that matters. He's essentially laying out two ways to live. Are you going to be wise or are you going to be a fool? Similar to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The one who is wise, of course, builds his or her life on the words of God. The one who is the fool ignores or rebels or rejects God's word or authority in his life. And so, friends, we're struck right from the beginning of this psalm with a challenge and this is the primary challenge, really, of the whole psalm and really a controlling principle of the Christian life. Here's the question. Do you believe that God knows better than you do? Do you believe that his instruction and teaching are for your good? Do you believe that your king could provide and preserve all of the principles that are necessary pertaining to life and godliness for you to have them for your good and your happiness and your blessedness and your flourishing. Do you trust this king? This is the question that has to be controlling our approach to this psalm. The other option, the alternative that you might be thinking or you might have thought in the past is that this, this instruction, this law, these testimonies, these statutes are just old 
They, they're disconnected from reality. They're too constricting. And in reality, I think they lead to a stifled life rather than a truly happy life. Is that what you're tempted to believe this morning? Let me just try to draw out some connections why we, like the psalmist, ought to trust that God's instruction is good, God's instruction is right, and God's instruction is trustworthy. All theology begins with God. It's an important principle. So what do we know about God? Well, we know that God is altogether good. We know that God never lies. We know that God never commits evil or approves of evil. We know that God's judgments are never unjust. So in this sense, God is blessed in the truest and highest sense of the word. This is the character of God. God is blessed. He is happy in that sense. He is self-sufficient, good, beautiful, true. And there is no shadow or taint of evil or lying in him. This is the character of God. Okay. His, his instruction is an expression of his character. God's word is an expression of God's character. And therefore, his instruction is, as he is, good and right. To pursue blessedness, to pursue happiness, we have to track it back to its original source, which is our creator, which is God himself. And we know God only because he has graciously, divinely, supernaturally revealed himself to us through his mighty acts and through his word. So I hope you see right off the bat from the beginning that this is not a suggestion to follow some blind moral obedience to some random guidelines that God made up arbitrarily in order for you to get by obedience what you actually want more, which could be anything other than God. I'll obey God with whatever rules he makes up so that I can get what I actually want in a misguided way where you're pursuing happiness that is self-centered and sinful. The pursuit of God in his law here is not simply to get blessing. It is to get God himself, which is the blessing. It's not the pursuit of obedience for the sake of getting hashtag blessed with material prosperity or whatever you might think when you think of the word blessed or blessing. This diligent pursuit of God's ways is about the relational pursuit of God himself. You can see it clearly in verse 2, that he seeks God with an upright heart. So if you want the blessing, you go to the source, which is God. And how do you get to that source? Well, you follow the path that he has provided. This is how you get to blessedness and happiness, to God himself. I was talking to a brother uh, last night, whose father is nearing the end of his early earthly life, who has embraced the gospel, just letting him know that I love him, I was praying for him. And he said, you know, it's amazing that the gospel is becoming more precious to me in the midst of this. That the, the gospel is true, is settling down into my heart. The hope of bodily resurrection is becoming way more tangible and real to me as I'm facing the reality of the death of my father. And as strange as that sounds, 
I responded to him by saying, you're, you're in a blessed place. To be able to rightly value God's word and to put your trust and hope in it, even in, in the midst of suffering and through the suffering, that is a blessed place to be, and he knows it. Here's where this hits close to home for you and I. Ever since Adam questioned God's goodness in the garden and went astray like a sheep, the relationship between God and his people was ruptured. The disobedience of God's word ended the relationship in the covenantal way it was meant to be enjoyed. And when God redeems his people out of Egypt, Israel, and he promises them many things through Abraham, he re-enters into covenant relationship with them again by re-establishing his word again. It's like, listen to this word again this time. He gives them his law. So we, we have to recognize that God giving his instruction to Israel is actually a gracious blessing to them. Do you understand the law in that sense? That it is actually a gift from God to know what leads to human flourishing and a, a life that pleases him? It was a gift to Israel meant to help them, meant to free them from their life of ignorance and doing whatever was right in their own eyes. The law is a guide in this sense. It is a gift to be in relationship with God. Do this. Just as Adam and Eve thought that God was keeping something better from them by giving them the instruction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you and I, friends, are prone to think that God's instruction for us is simply him trying to keep something from us. He's trying to keep us from being truly free. This is the temptation. I wonder if you've ever had that thought slither across your mind before. That God's holding out. And we've, we flip this blessing upside down and we think, well, no, blessed are those who make up their own rules. Blessed are those who stay true to themselves. If I can just make up my own rules, well, then I can pursue happiness in my own terms and I can be the captain of my own ship. And then and only then will I be able to be perfectly content. And this is what we're going to be faced with over and over again in this psalm. That's a lie. It's a trap. Embracing God's instruction is not what is keeping humanity from reaching its full potential and human flourishing. It is actually, indeed, friends, quite the opposite. But we are prone, aren't we? We are prone by our nature and we are trained by our cultural intuitions to think that anything that binds us or constrains us must inherently be harmful. This is the lie that we're trained to think that in order to be truly free, the highest good is, of course, to be truly free. Well, then that means in order to be truly free, we have to throw off the shackle of every authority that is not us, every constraint outside of us. So God and his instruction, his will for us, well, that has to be, that has to be rejected in order to be authentic. I've got to be true to myself. We have to make up our own rules to really pursue happiness. Otherwise, we're not being authentic. 
But I want to suggest that this psalmist's goal is not authenticity because he's not pursuing his own feelings or thoughts in order to be true to himself, if that's what we're defining authenticity to be. The psalmist's goal is integrity. He desires for his actions to line up with what he trusts is better than his own feelings, which is God's instruction. There's an important difference, I think, between this cultural definition of authenticity, being true to yourself, and integrity, which is the Christian's desire to be the same on the outside as we are on the inside, and to desire rightly what we ought to desire, and to live in such a way that it is evident that we believe that that is true. Not just being true to his own changing thoughts or emotions, but seeking the unchanging God with all of his heart. Now, you might be discouraged right off the bat, even in this first verse, by, by seeing that word blameless in the very first verse. Blessed are those who are blameless. I think, wow, we didn't even finish the first verse, and I'm out already. Uh, this psalm is not about me. I can't find anything about this uh, that pertains to me. I am definitely not blameless. I will never be blameless. So let's just carefully think about this word for a moment, biblically, as we can start by just clearing the air with a catechism question and answer. This is question 13 from the New City Catechism. It asks this question, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The answer it provides, since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. You see this in Romans 3. It is the consistent teacher, uh, teaching throughout Scripture. And yet, that is true, and yet we see within Scripture that there are mere humans who are called blameless. So how are we going to make sense out of this? Check it out in Luke 1. Luke chapter 1 says, Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Okay, so what we have to come to terms with, if we're trying to synthesize what the Bible is telling us about humanity, is that no one can follow the law perfectly, no one is sinless, and yet we can walk blamelessly. This does not mean that they were without sin. I love the way that the one commentator, Christopher Ash, puts it, he says this, quote, blamelessness is, is about direction rather than achievement. It's about direction rather than achievement. It is, again, to have that integrity. Well, the Lord knows we can't keep the law perfectly, and he actually, he knows that so well that he built that into the law. That's why the law includes provisions for when we sin. That's what the sacrificial system was designed for. So do you see, uh, even here, how the gospel is foreshadowed? So here's what this means for the Christian. We cannot be sinless in this life, on this side of glory, but we can and ought to pursue integrity by acknowledging our sin, following the law, following the law's direction to confess our sin and confess it as such, and to recognize to be blameless is actually simply to confess Christ as our only hope of righteousness. That's where our blamelessness is found. To acknowledge that 
we desire not to sin, and yet if we do sin, we have a mediator, one who interposes his righteousness for us. We can, as disciples of Christ, those empowered by his Holy Spirit, repent. We can turn from our own self-destructive paths, and we can turn back to the path of happiness, of blessedness, which is the path that leads to God himself. Our holiness is our happiness. Don't believe anything other than that. Our holiness is not perfect. Our holiness is not not sinlessness. It is not a self-empowered righteousness, but it is a willful confession that God's ways are better than our own and that we fall short and we confess and we repent and we trust in the righteousness that he gives to us that can only be received by faith. And the psalmist even hints at this confession in the next few verses, in verses 5 through 8. Second, aspire to desire the Lord's teaching. Verses 5 through 8. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The psalmist expresses here in the form of a prayer the desire to keep God's statutes. Verse 5. If blessedness is being on God's path, then to be on your own path is a curse. You tracking with that? If the path towards God is the path that he provides, then to be on your own individual self-created path is actually a curse, not a blessing. And so this prayerful meditation is actually an expression of his goal to train, to disciple his heart, to desire to be upright and to follow God so that he does not go astray like a lost sheep, which is how he ends this whole psalm in Psalm 119, the very final verse of Psalm 119, a recognition of needing a shepherd. What we find in these verses is that it is a fearful prospect to be handed over to your own sin. Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, says that the psalmist trembles lest he should be left to himself. And this fear is increased by the horror which he has of falling into sin. One of my kids has recently taken to propagating seeds. It's a fun little hobby. And so he'll take seeds out of different fruits, vegetables, and put them in a damp uh, napkin in a Ziploc bag and put them in the fridge in a cold, damp place to let them germinate. And then once they germinate, they sprout. He puts them into little containers of soil and he, he sprays them and uh, covers them with a dome so it acts like a little greenhouse. And it's consistently surprising and fun just to, to see those little seeds begin to peek out from the soil and to see the leaves draw up from that dirt and to begin to stand tall and to spread out. The soil provides the system of nutrients and connection to the water and air that that seed needs. We would recognize that if he planted that seed in concrete, it would never sprout. 
If you put that seed in wet concrete, it would never flourish. And yet we, in our ridiculousness, try to nestle our hopeful seed of happiness into unrighteousness and sin, and then step back and expect it to sprout up and flourish. The definition of foolishness. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is to bring us conviction of that ignorance and rebellion and sin. And in our greatest moments of clarity, we recognize that there is no hope of blessing being on our own self-defined path. The psalmist's greatest fear is wandering so far off that he's not going to be able to find his way back. Or worse, that once he's gone off the path, he won't want to come back. So as he's meditating, as he's writing this out, his earnest desire in verses 1 through 4 is to keep God's precepts utterly, exceedingly, strengthfully, with the intended outcome in verses 5 through 8 that he would never be separated from God himself utterly, exceedingly. The goal of keeping the law of God is not a a boastful, short-sighted goal that the psalmist is engaging in. It's actually just a bold, personal resolution and a humble dependence upon God himself. I hope you see this. It is a bold declaration and a humble dependence, both at the same time. He prays like Augustine prayed in his confessions. Lord, give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. It is a humble dependence upon the power of God in prayer, a bold resolution and a humble dependence. It is Trinity Sunday this morning, which is that one Sunday out of the church calendar year that we get to contemplate the one true triune God. And so we think of how all three persons of the Trinity act in unity to bring about this prayerful desire of the psalmist to walk the path that leads to God to fruition. The Father gives the words that lead to life. Then he sends the Son, who is, of course, the eternal Word, who assumed a human nature, who lived out the law of God with absolute integrity as not a mere human, a true human, but not a mere human, did obey the law of God perfectly in every way. He meditated on the law of the Lord in the way that Psalm 1 talks about. He truly fulfilled the law on behalf of all those who would confess their sin and trust in him as the way and the truth and the life. And on the cross, Christ faced the horror that this psalmist did not want to face. Christ faced the horror of sin. Even in the garden, as he anticipated being forsaken by God, he cried out with sweat like great drops of blood. And this is what we know about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he was forsaken, even though it was you and I who deserved to be utterly forsaken. That Christ was forsaken by the Father so that we can confess with bold confidence that nothing now will separate us from the love of God in Christ. It is the recognition that God provided all that he requires in the life of Christ. 
And then the Holy Spirit is given to those who desire earnestly to walk in the way of their Lord and Savior. From beginning to the end, from the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God is himself the author and finisher of our faith. We do not earn our righteousness before God. It is a gift to be received by faith. And because, and because God has done all that for us, he has showed us the way he has chased us down with his rod and his staff. He has plowed through every mountain that stood between us. He has built the bridge that brings us back to provide the path to himself. Because of this, we ought to aspire to desire the Lord's teaching, not out of duty, because it's simply the right thing to do, but out of delight, because we want to please and be like the one who redeemed us. Friends, there is the freedom that we truly need. It is the freedom from ourselves, it is not the freedom to ourselves. Freedom from the fear of God's just condemnation is, is gone. The freedom from our obedience to our own fallen, fickle, changing hearts and minds can be gone. The freedom to want to obey the law of God because we desire to please and resemble the God who pursued us in pursuit of him, this is where freedom is found. This is the message of Psalm 119. Pursue God through his word. This is the happy life. So where are you struggling to believe this right now? What's the battleground of competing desires right now where you're tempted to stray from the path and to think, oh, maybe God missed it here. He didn't know what was going to happen to me. My unique situation and circumstance is different. Where is it happening for you this morning? Here is a silent reminder that we can't trust our own competence to measure and define happiness. We submit to God, we trust, and we believe in his instruction, even when it's confusing, in order to understand what happiness truly is. Submission to God's word is the path to true happiness because it is the path to God himself. May we all earnestly desire to act with integrity to that confession. Where else can we go? He's got the words of life. Praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.